0: Uh, morning can we turn our bibles to romans chapter 7 we're going to be reading from 13 to 25 did that which is good then bring death to me by no means it was sin, sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law spiritual is spiritual but i am of the flesh sold under sin another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive of the law of sin that dwells in my members wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death Things be to god through jesus christ our lord so then i myself serve the law of god with my mind but with my flesh i serve the law of sin well good morning
1: trinity and those of you who are visiting with us this morning uh, we are in the book of Romans in chapter 7, and I hope that you brought your favorite theological flotation device because we are jumping back into the deep end of the scriptures. These are some of the hardest scriptures in all of the Bible that we're looking at this morning. In fact, as I was thinking about Romans 7, 13 to 25 this week, uh, I was actually reminded of a season in my life as a teenager. Uh, now, I was baptized as a 10-year-old, I uh, believe that's when I came to Christ saw little growth until I began to enter my teenage years and began to sense this desire in me uh, for rebellion or for Christ. Uh, I was feeling kind of both and trying to figure out which way I was going to live, if I was going to follow Christ with my life or if I was going to seek pleasure as much as possible. And I remember that I, I really started in those days looking at my church family And I started to listen really closely to the pastor because it was in this season that as I I began to, I I think, mature spiritually and grow an appetite for the Word of God and to obey God, I simultaneously started sensing that though I thought I was getting more mature, I, I simultaneously felt this strange feeling that I was actually becoming less holy the harder I tried. And I thought that was weird. I started thinking, man, I don't know if I got baptized right. It seems like the more that I give myself to Christ, the more that I'm seeing just how unholy I am. And that's not just outwardly in my actions. I mean, most people thought I was a good kid. What really caused me a sense of terror was the desires of my heart that I was fighting day in and day out. in life seemed so easy for my friends who were not Christians. It it seemed like they just didn't care that they were sinning against God. Life seemed easy. They seemed to be happy. They were having parties. Everybody was having fun. And I was sitting here in angst. And I wondered if I had truly experienced the grace of God that I heard the Christian brothers and sisters around me singing week in and week out as they proclaimed, victory in Jesus over and over again. And all I could think was, I I don't know if I'm experiencing victory in the way these brothers and sisters are. I mean, it seems like they've got everything together, but I, I don't. I'm a mess inside. I wondered if I got baptized right with all those desires that were just kind of warring within me. And if that's you... I believe that's to some degree all of us in Christ this morning. Paul speaks, I believe, to this reality here in these very verses of Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. These verses are the historical epicenter of that doctrine known as indwelling sin, which speaks of the ongoing sense uh, of the way that we face sinful desires, temptations, And act on those even in Christ. Now, uh, I am identifying, we are identifying the I that's speaking in verses 17 to 25 uh, this morning. Uh, You'll notice that that I has been speaking uh, all throughout uh, chapter 7, beginning in verse uh, 7. And as we looked at that, we know that these are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. And Paul is describing here... Uh, as people have looked at it, one of two realities, either a pre-Christian reality or a Christian reality. Uh, I believe that we probably have people in the church this morning who would say that this text speaks to uh, one or the other of these. Uh, I don't think that everybody's on the same page here. So just to illustrate the difficulty of this text, you'll remember last week we put up three different uh, perspectives on the book of Romans chapter 7, whether it was a pre-Christian, Christian, Christian. Or an experience in which we were just asking the wrong question. He's talking about something else. Well, the pre-Christian experience that we mentioned was was Tom Schreiner. Who says he believes this is a pre-Christian experience. And he says that in his first commentary on Romans. But if you buy his updated version, you'll notice that he changed his mind. And now he holds to the Christian experience. Now, the reason I I think that that's important to note is just to say we need to have a sense of humility as we come to this text, but we also want to pay careful attention to what the word's saying so we can understand what this experience is speaking of. Now, you'll notice that Paul's use of I here, as we said last week, is actually, I take it as autobiographical. In other words, he's speaking of his own experience, but it's also paradigmatic. That means that He is inviting those who would have been listening to him to enter into his experience and say, yeah, that's my experience too. And so that's the way that we're reading this, that we too should be reading ourselves into these verses. Now you may remember from last week that Paul began unfolding this epic drama that's unfolding. There are three main characters, the I, the law, and sin. And he's looking at this past experience in verses 7 to 12 that looks like a, polaroid snapshot of an event in history and he's saying how did when i came to desire uh when i hit my bar mitzvah age of 13 and started understanding the nature of the law how is it that in that moment that the law all of a sudden became very clear to me but also by sinful desires how did those things come together and how do they relate how does the law sin and me how do those things interact and engage how do I, i think of those things well, here, I believe Tim, uh, Will Timmons has a correct reading of verses 13 to 25 when he says this. In these verses, Paul is bringing our mortal body out of the shadows in this conversation. You'll notice that he is focusing on our human bodies and, and the nature of their relationship to sin and the law. And he wants us to focus on the ongoing implications of the fact that we are living in these bodies that are dying and passing away and wasting away and still under the shadow of Adam experiencing sinful desires as we await Christ to come and give us new bodies. I believe that's what he is focusing in on here in these verses this morning. Paul has thundered the grace of God on display at the cross of Christ where he put sin and death to death. I mean, he's been talking about that. It's exciting, it's thrilling to think about the freedom that comes to the Christian in Christ, and yet our bodies still die. Christians still sin. You, you'll remember in Romans six twelve to 14, Paul uh, echoed the same idea. He commanded Roman Christians, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. And then verse 14 for sin will have no dominion over you. Wait a minute, why did you tell me not to sin if you told me sin won't have dominion over me? I think that's the kind of thing that he's fleshing out here in relation to our bodies this morning. He's wanting us to understand what life is like for the believer between our conversion and the consummation that is coming when Jesus Christ returns. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Our big idea is this, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's that indwelling sin reminds us of our desperate need for Jesus every day and the new body that awaits us on the last day. Indwelling sin, it's reminding us constantly of our desperate need for Jesus every day, moment by moment and also for the great day that's coming where he is going to give us a new eternal body. First. Notice in verse 13, Paul does what he's been doing throughout. He's asking a question. We'll see in this verse that sin weaponized God's good law. I think that's what Paul is telling us. Sin weaponized God's good law. Now, verse 13, it's kind of like a bridge between verse 12 and verse 14. Now, he just said that the law is not sin. That's its relationship to sin, not sin. And now he shows how the law which is good, holy, and righteous played a role in the death of the eye, of Paul. And Paul asks this, verse 13 Did that which is good then, being the law bring death to me? And what is the relationship between the good law and the death of the eye? To verses 10 and 11 above where he talked about the the law bringing death to him, do they mean that that law which promised life actually brought about the death of I? Well, Paul again offers his brief, clear, short answer that he offers throughout. By no means, which translates, no way, Jose. Of course not. God forbid. That is crazy talk. That's not the answer, right? And then what he does is is he proceeds to kind of unfold what he means by that. Notice what he explains as he goes on in verse 13. He says, it was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. Now it may have appeared that the law aided and abetted sin up to this point in Romans, but here Paul is envisioning the law as the instrument of sin that sin used to bring about death. It's an instrument. As we showed last week, Paul assumes that the truth of the law is an instrument of good. That is, as we said last week, axiomatic. It is assumed to be true. They don't need to argue or explain it. The law is good. Of course it's it's good. In fact, one author wrote... Of the nature of the law, describing it. And he said there are three good uses of the law in his threefold use of the law. And he said it's an instrument of good in the Christian life. And I think these are generally good ways for the Christian to view the law if they're viewing it through the lens of who Jesus is, now that he's arrived and how he's taught it and how the apostles have taught it. Some Christians may quibble over the Sabbath, as we talked about, but but we would say that it's a good thing to obey God's word. And as they did that, he, this author explained the law and its goodness in three different ways. And I want to give you three pictures just to help you remember that. Anybody like pictures to remember stuff? Nobody. Okay, it's just me, but this will help me this morning to remember. So the first is a mirror, the second is a leash, and the last is a light. So as a mirror, the, the law is good for us in this sense. Uh, it is a mirror in the sense that as we look into the law we see the perfections of God but as we're looking and staring at the perfections of God we actually see a reflection of our coming back and we notice our own imperfections our sins our frailty and our desperate need for the transforming grace of Jesus Christ in other words when we see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God who created us in his image, we know that that is what we have been made for. And we will not rest until we've been made into the image of the very God in the face of Jesus Christ. Second, it's like a a leash as well. So as a leash, we know that the law is powerless to change our hearts. In fact, I think that's one of the main points of our verses this morning. But the terrible consequences and punishments that we find throughout the law will at least cause some curb or pause in sin to some degree. Uh, In fact, John Calvin explaining this says that for those who unless forced and will not have rectitude for justice, God has given his law to constrain them. In other words, there are some, unless there are those visible Uh, strengths and and terrible consequences it will at least cause them to pause and think about sin, it's a bad day whenever we no longer pause whenever society does not pause before they sin against a holy and righteous God the third use of the law is out of a light and I would call it a light of the light and here's what I mean The, the law reveals what pleases God to his born again children so as we look at it we see what it is that we are called to live for how we are to live to glorify God And God intends the law to be an instrument of good, which Paul uses here to highlight just how sinful sin is. See, the law might have been the instrumental cause of death, but he says sin is the ultimate cause of death. You've probably heard the saying, and I don't want to get too political here, but you've heard it said that guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, I think this text says, the law doesn't kill people, people kill people, right? Indwelling sin kills people. Paul was killed with the law, not by the law. Sin weaponized the law as an instrument of good to bring about death. Now, why did God allow this, you might ask? Well, Paul's actually using the law here to show just how sinister sin really is. And Paul says the purpose of the law here is to do two things. Did you catch those things in verse 13? A, to reveal just how wicked and sinister sin is. We would not have known explicitly how bad it is unless God had shown us. But second, to demonstrate the power of sin. To use the good law to bring about its nefarious ends. It is showing us just how malicious sin is. Now come in close. Paul shows that not only is the law powerless to cause sin, the law is powerless to stop sin in verses 14 to 20. It's not just powerless to cause sin, it's powerless to stop sin. Notice here in verses 14 to 20 how he unfolds this reality that the Christian experiences the presence and power of indwelling sin. Now, you'll notice first in verses 14 to 20 how Paul is is shifting to the present tense, which he's going to use throughout the rest of this chapter. He he was in a, a past snapshot type tense in the verses before it. Now he's saying this is a present reality. And verses 14 to 17 show the powerlessness of the law before indwelling sin And then in verses 18 to 20, it'll show the powerlessness of the I himself to overcome sin in himself. Uh, First, did you see the powerlessness of the law before indwelling sin in verses 14 to 17? Uh, Look there, we'll read those verses again. Here's what he says. Paul writes this in Romans 7, verses 14 to 17. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me." Now Paul is quick to highlight that the law is spiritual, and I I take that to mean that the law is of the Holy Spirit it is from God, as contrasted to the I who says he is actually of the flesh and sold under sin. I take that to be two different sort of heaven versus earth kind of realities. Now flesh is an interesting word. You know that words are used differently. The same words are sometimes used differently in the Bible. Sometimes you even find within the same verse, the same word will be used in different ways. Well, flesh is one of those words that has different meanings, and sometimes it means the present evil world, or for human existence that is apart from God, and both are highlighting rebellion towards God, a world or a person who is opposed to God. That's one way that it's used. Now, this is one reason that some, as they look to these verses, understand Paul to describe a pre-Christian experience. But flesh can also mean fleshly, or simply the the experience of Christians living in in the body, this body of flesh. I I take it that way. Uh, Will Timmons, in his monograph, says this. He says, speaking of the nature of the flesh, it describes here the anthropological condition of human beings living in the shadow of Adam as they await the resurrection of their bodies. And you're like, that is a big word. Why do you keep using big words? Anthropological. It's just a word that's talking about the human condition, our humanity, our our bodily existence. It's not talking about our relationship with Christ, whether or not we are a Christian or a non-Christian. It is saying that all of us have bodies and are living in that experience. We can all understand that, whether Christian or non-Christian. And here he is speaking of a Christian experience living this fleshly experience existence. In other words, flesh here, it doesn't mean opposition to God. Now you'll remember that the book opens describing Jesus who became the seed of David according to the flesh. So it can't mean necessarily opposition to God because Jesus entered into the flesh, right? So I take it here that Paul is speaking of something very specific and nuanced. He's talking about The already not yet experience of Christians who still have their old bodies indwelt by sin and that kind of existential crisis that is experienced by every believer who longs to be what they are and yet are not yet what they shall be. This is the place I I think that Paul is speaking to in these verses. Now catch how this fleshes out in verse 15. See what I did there? All right, moving on. He says, he doesn't understand Or literally know why he does what he does. He's literally conflicted. There are two powers at work within him. He doesn't do what he wants, which here is obey the law. Instead, he does the very thing he hates, which is sin. And then in verses 16 to 17, Paul says that even when he sins, he shows that the law is good. In other words, you might think that when you sin, it must be because the law is broken. Like it's his fault, not mine. But he says, no, Like even when I sin, it it actually magnifies the goodness of the law. He says, but another force wars inside him, and it's against that desire to obey God. And that, that force is this sin that dwells within me, not just close to me, not just in eyesight of me, but within me. And that internal fight with sin reveals the depth of our sin problem while living in these bodies of sin. So what Paul is saying, there are two things that are clear. First, and I get this from Tom Schreiner, that one cannot fully comprehend the depth of sin in oneself. The evil in our hearts is not just a mystery to others, it is a mystery to us. I don't even understand myself and the way that I operate most of the time, okay, some of the time, with the kind of clarity of precision that God does. I, I do not see myself, I don't understand, I'm, I'm needy as I, I find that struggle going within me. I am desperate. I do not have resources in this body of flesh to save me from the sins that I need to be saved from and rescued from. And second, the powerlessness of the law in comparison to the power of sin is shown here. The, the, the law, do you, do you see it? The law is powerless to prevent me from sinning if it's just me and the law. If it's just left to me and the law, I, I can't keep it left to myself. Uh, John Owen, as, as, as many others have looked to this text, I actually see this as like ground zero for indwelling sin and that doctrine of Christian experience. And John Owen, he explains indwelling sin saying this. He says that there is an exceeding efficacy, in other words, something that that brings something about efficiently, and a power in the remainders of indwelling sin in believers with a constant working towards evil. In other words, even in Christ, even for the redeemed, even for those who cannot wait for Jesus to come back, there is still a war that is waging within us. Paul continues to explain this in verses 18 to 20. And I want you to pay attention. If you read quick, you might think that he's just repeating himself, but I think that he's actually developing the argument. See what he says. Here we find this, the powerlessness of the fleshly eye before indwelling sin. Let's look at those verses again. Verses 18 to 20, where Paul shows the powerlessness of the fleshly eye before indwelling sin. He, He says this, For I know that nothing... Good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now we see the same internal struggle with indwelling sin here, and again, Paul is highlighting the flesh of Paul. Speaking of his bodily existence, living in the shadow of Adam as they await the culmination of Christ's return, the true light. And here Paul highlights the inability of the eye to carry out what pleases God. That's completely true of the life of the non-Christian. Non-Christians absolutely cannot please God. We can't please God apart from union with Christ. Fallen humanity still bears the image of God, though marred by sin. Fallen humanity, non-Christians, can glorify God. They can bring glory to God. They can do good things because of God's common grace, and yet not experience the saving grace of God in which they themselves experience the pleasure of God. But I take this to highlight another reality. There's nothing intrinsic to a Christian's body which is still living under the shadow of Adam which can please God. It is dying. It is passing away. It is full of impulses that cause us to do things which displease God, which go against His moral law. Man is powerless in his flesh to please God in himself. And Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Now, take it that Paul is describing the already not yet experience of every Christian, and Paul is describing the Christian experience of life between conversion and consummation. Now, we've been just justified by faith alone. If we are in Christ, we are children of God. We are loved by God. Yet our bodies are wasting away, and we still feel those passions of this fleshly existence. Now, this is a tough text with good reasons to be read either as a pre-Christian or a Christian experience. There are strong exegetical reasons for experiencing this or reading this as a Christian experience. we, We could go through all of those details in the text. We don't have time to show all of the details in the text. But there's also another reason that goes beyond exegesis that makes us want to understand this along with other Christians from Christian past as a Christian. And that is this, our own existential experience. Right? We know that we struggle with sin. And I'll say this. If you have somebody that tells you that they came to Christ and they no longer struggle with any sin ever. I'm not sure they understand what sin is. And I'm not so sure they're lucid. Because my experience in my own life and every person that I've ever met who loves Jesus is that they are fighting the good fight for Christ. Christians resonate with the reality expressed by John Newton. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but I still, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. There is a trajectory that's going up, but it's not going to meet completion until Jesus gets back. Until Jesus gets back, we all have work to do. See, Christians experience sinful desires, and the real question is how are you going to respond to those desires? Christians also sin. The question is how do you respond to sin? We'll get to that later, but here, third, Christians fight and lament as they await Jesus' return in verses 21 to 25. Christians fight and lament as they await Jesus' return. In verses 21 to 25. I I want to make a couple of observations that I I hope will help you on the front end of reading these verses. Uh, First observation is this. Paul's drawing a conclusion from this struggle between his good desires and bad actions that he just talked about in the previous verses. And here you'll notice that he's, he's focusing on the law. In fact, he uses that word law seven times. Now, law is used in different ways in the Bible as well. We've even seen that in the book of Romans. And here, though he's been talking about Mosaic law, it's clear that he's using it, at least in some context, as something other than Mosaic law. We'll look at that in a second. But the second thing that I want to point out here is that Paul here is highlighting the battle. And he is saying it is between the law of God and the law of sin. Those two things are at work in in, in, uh, Christians so let's take a look at these verses beginning in verse 21 look what he says so i find it to be a law that when i want to do right evil lies close at hand see paul concludes that there is a a law a a word here that can also mean principle i think that's what he's speaking of and he even tells us what that principle is do you see it I desire to do right, but evil lies close at hand. That's a principle that I just see as being true all around me. And it's right there with him. Do you feel how creepy that is? I think we can sometimes domesticate sin because we talk about it all the time. And, And when we watch the news and people talk about sin, they talk about it like this dumb thing that Christians always have to bring up and ruin the party. But we don't understand the power of sin according to Paul in the scriptures. We don't understand the images that are associated with sin according to the scriptures. A lot of times I think when we talk about sin, and you feel that evil and sin lies close at hand, that it's like a domesticated cat. Now, I don't like cats. But I don't run from cats, right? I, like, I get all like, I'm not scared of cats. The other day I was uh, visiting a family who just had a baby and they had this massive cat. I think he probably weighed 10 pounds. And we had Mia, who's just 17 months old. And Mia was sitting there and this cat was like crouched and ready, it looked like, to attack her like a tiger. And the size proportion was just about that. Like it would have been like a tiger to me. And I snatched her up and I, I drug her away. I said, you are not going to get eaten by a cat at a family's house. That's just not the way to go. <laughs> but I think sometimes we think of ourselves as like my size next to a house cat when we think about the relationship of us to sin. That's not the picture that the Bible gives of sin. It is not a domesticated house cat. The pictures that we get for the nature of sin is a huge, snarling, fire-breathing, human-eating monster. How many humans has it eaten? Every one of them. There is no human that has withstood the power of sin and death. So when we think about the nature of sin, do we understand that if it close at hand, then we need not to be passive, not to be lazy as we think about our relationship with sin. We need to be Alive, alert, awake, fighting, prepared. We need to be booted up for war. We always need to be on guard. Verses 22 to 23 explain verse 21. Look look what it says. Here's what Paul says. Explaining verse 21. He says this in verse 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now some take the law of God to be God's moral law as expressed in the Ten Commandments. But I understand here, I I think there is room to understand this like we've understood it previously in chapter 2, is a kind of universal law for all of humanity. And the context here is an internal war in his inner being. It is an inner being in which this sin that dwells within his members, which I, think, I take as being members of his body, is warring against that, those inner desires to please God. Now, the context here is this internal war. And Paul uses this language speaking to the Corinthians as well as he's talking about the inner being. In that same context, in, first, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians... Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he says this in 2 Corinthians 14, 16. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self or being is being renewed day by day. Now there Paul speaks of the hope of the future awaiting those Jesus will raise up and bring into his presence on the last day. And he goes on to say in verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The context there in 2 Corinthians is bodily suffering for Jesus' sake. The context in Romans 7 is bodily suffering in the war with indwelling sin. Now again, some argue this is a free Christian experience, noting that first century Jews they would have said, they would have declared confidently that they delighted in the law of God in the inner being. And that's true. But the question I have here is whether a good Jew would also have said that he sees in the members of his body another law or principle warring against his mind. Would he have seen that? And as the body wastes away, Paul sees it as the locus of all kinds of sinful desires. He seems to go to great lengths to distinguish his body and members, and members from his mind or soul here. Now, I I don't think that he's trying to give us, like, dualism, like the body's good and the mind's bad or something, or the mind's good and the body's bad or anything like that. I think he's trying to give us a, a picture of this inner turmoil that is going with relationship to this physical body. Now, you might ask, in what way can a Christian be captive to the law of sin if he's living under grace? And I think that's a great question. Well, I've again been persuaded by Will Timmons that Paul is speaking here of an anthropological reality relating to his body and his person, not as an ontological reality that addresses whether or not he loves Jesus and is a Christian. He's talking about the nature of what it means to be a Christian in this human body, this side of Jesus coming back. In other words, he's describing the nature of the human body of Christians as they await their new bodies on that last day. He's not describing whether or not they are justified by faith. We, we are free from sin and death, but anthropologically, we still war against sin and a body that is wasting away. In fact, in Romans six twelve, Paul told Christians not to let sin reign in their mortal bodies even though he had just said that they'd been freed from sin and death by means of faith in Jesus Christ. I, I think he's pulling out that tension. What do we do before Jesus comes back and finally frees us from these bodies of death and sin? Well, sin is an operative law in in, uh, Adamic bodily state as he awaits the body of Christ on that last day. That's why I believe verse 24 erupts in this lament to God. He is lamenting the reality that he is living in. As he longs for the restoration of all things. As he longs for that new body that is to come. He says, wretched man that I am, who will, catch this, who will in the future deliver me from this body of death? Do you see that? it's this? He's really putting into full effect this desire for the body to be raised up. He's looking for the bodily resurrection. That future deliverance that's coming when? With the second coming of Christ. See, Paul's exclamation here communicates a unique sense of despair. And he's not just lamenting the horrible sins that he has committed, as much as that ongoing presence of indwelling sin whose impact is deeper than he can understand. He, he wants to be freed from it, from the chaos. And did you catch what he wants to be saved from, that body of death which dwells in the shadow of Adam. Well, he then turns from lament in verse 24 immediately to thanks in God. And I believe this this thank to God is one of the strongest arguments for this being a Christian experience. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the I gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's hard to imagine a non-Christian making this kind of declaration especially since he continues. Notice that verse 25 doesn't start there. Uh, stop there. He continues to say, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So, uh, Jesus is Lord, and yet this is still here. Now, this is so hard for some people that see this as a pre-Christian uh, uh, text, that they actually say, well, I think verse 25, somebody must have like added that in later, even though all of the evidence says they didn't. So, what I would say here is, is that it seems clearly from, from verse 25, as best I understand today, that he is speaking of a Christian experience. The eye clearly is declaring in the first half of verse 25, along with the other Christians who are presently in Christ, as they await a future resurrection. And the second half says there is a war between the law of God and his mind, warring against the law of sin in his flesh. So let me just close with some applications as as we wrap this up. Uh, I've got a number of applications, uh, so I'm going to get through as many as I can, but the first is this. Can we just please not divide over this text? There's just one. I just want to lay that out there. Maybe I should have begun with that. But we live in such a divisive age. In fact, um, I was watching yesterday, and there was a, a football player, a young football player who died, very accomplished, and then all of a sudden, some people started tweeting like, really like, Stuff they didn't need to about him, like pointing out failures instead of all of the accomplishments. And then people started fighting about the way they were talking about death. I was like, you know, we we can't even die in peace anymore. Like, we just fight about everything. Let it not be so in the house of God. Let's all work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and that includes in our exegesis. Second, I, I take it that Paul's main highlight here is to be both that the law and the eye are powerless to keep us from sin. I think you know this. I hope that if you're here, if you've spent any time here, you know that our preaching is not intended to simply jump from, this is what the law says, you're a failure, amen, let's go home and get lunch. Like that's not the kind of preaching I don't think that breathes life. I don't think that's the way that Paul speaks of the nature of the gospel. No, we, we need to hear the good news of Jesus. We need to understand that I, in myself, even as a Christian, left to myself, the law by itself, they cannot save me from the power of sin. There's a scene from the, the Bob Newhart show. Anybody know what that is? Anybody? Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, old show, but in the show, he's playing a, a kind of therapist, and a woman comes in to get help. She's got all of these, like, problems Things that she can't get over. And uh, you might have seen this famous clip, but she says, okay, um, I'm here for help. And he's like, yeah, I I can help you. It only takes five minutes. It's $5. And uh, so let's go ahead and get started. So she shares a little bit. And he says, okay, are you ready? She says, yeah. He said, okay, I've got two words that are going to change everything. And uh, she's like, what? Okay, do I need to write this down? He goes, no, it's, it's two words. I think you're fine. Most people can remember it. So, okay, what is it? Stop it. And that didn't go so well, so she said, well, let's go to the other problem, and you get another problem, and he said, okay, here it is, you ready? Completely different problem, same medicine, stop it. And at the end, she's just like, completely frazzled, and she's like, what are you talking, how is this helpful, right? Well, that's the same nature, I think, with the way that some of us look at the law, we think that the law is meant to just say, like, here's what it says to do, you're not doing it, you're a failure, get better. Now, the nature of the gospel is actually meant first to come in to show us just how unable we are to obey God left to ourselves. We are a deeply needy humanity. We are frail. We are fragile. We are sinners. Uh, you know, I, I don't think sometimes we understand just how sinful we are. Uh, the other day, um, I think I've shared a story with you before where I was telling you about how someone that was really close to me um, slandered me, I felt like he just like a couple of times really was telling me one thing, was telling people other things, and then put me in this like really bad position where I began to, to just be angry. And so I, I in this moment, you know, I, I really felt like I was the victim, but, but the thing I was struggling with, it was this calling, causing me to have anger with others, really perceived myself as a victim, but I was becoming angry, and, and, and not angry in good ways, and trying to figure out how to deal with that anger, uh, there were other times that, as, as I was continuing to process and work through this, I found that I was uh, struggling to trust other people as though they had like, done the same thing. And I realized, like in that moment, like even when I saw myself as a victim, I, I became a kind of perpetrator in the way that I was beginning to sin because I felt like I had been sinned against. And isn't that just the wiliness of the nature of the way that sin works in this world? We have to always be vigilant. Vigilant that we ourselves can become teamed up with sin against our good God. But there's another thing that I want you to remember this morning, and that's third. Even though I'm powerless before sin, even though the law is powerless before sin, you know who's not powerless before sin? Jesus. You don't just need Jesus to get you to heaven, you need Jesus to get you to tomorrow. Tomorrow. The point that Paul wants us to see is our utter helplessness and dependence on Jesus. Indwelling sin is why we are not passively holy. If you're not fighting spiritually, you're you're dying. People who take indwelling sin and heaven seriously, they fight sin by digging deep into God's word, memorizing scripture so that when they are being told lies they can actually see the lie for what it is and combat it with the truth of God's word just like Jesus does in Matthew 4 when he's coming before the prince of lies himself we pray God I don't understand my own heart will you, will you save me from this heart will you make me holy like you are holy will you help me to, to forgive will you help me not to be angry in wrong ways will you help me to control my appetites I can't do it I am desperately needy for you. I know a day's coming when all this is going to be over. But right now, will you visit and help me? I need you if I'm going to make it to the end. And Knowing Sin by Mark Jones, he, he writes, This is the summary of the Christian life. Not passive reluctance to our sin, but a holy war that is waged by the one who knows that victory is assured because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's 1 John four. 4. Not only that, fourth. Know that the more you mature in Christ, the more you are aware of indwelling sin. There is a, a real logic to the reason that as you walk with Christ, You grow in a knowledge and sense of your own sinfulness, your own neediness of Him, but also the beauty and majesty and power and love and goodness of Jesus Christ who came for you who could not help yourself. The Jesus who never leaves or forsakes you. Not just at the cross and not just at the consummation, But every day, Jesus is present for new mercies to help you, to love you, to serve you. You're like, you don't know what yesterday was like, but I do know what the cross was like, and I do know what the future holds. I know who Jesus is. New mercies every morning. But what about me? It's not about you. It's about the nature of who Jesus is. So the more we mature in Christ, the more that we are aware of indwelling sin, the more we see how ugly it is, the more we see the brokenness and the carnage in relationships, and we don't want that. The the more that we see the beautiness, the beauty of faithfulness in Christ, the life that is breathed in to people who have no hope when they see the glories of Christ and the way that we love others becoming his hands and feet. Ignorance is not bliss. It's dangerous. Uh, Owen John Owen, he also says this, where it is least felt, speaking of indwelling sin, it is most powerful. So if you're thinking to yourself, I don't feel indwelling sin, I think I'm pretty good. You're worse than you know. Uh, Mark Jones in his book Knowing Sin follows it up saying this, those who feel the the most the strength of indwelling sin are those who need to least worry about it. Think about the good news of that. This morning you might be thinking, I'm overwhelmed by my sin. Mark Jones says, you're in a great place. A great place if it's turning you towards Christ and the resources that are there for you in full. Not only that, fifth, the fight ends when we get our new bodies. The fight ends when we get our new bodies. I know some of you are probably tired today, tired of the fight of sin. You feel like you're a failure, you feel like, is there ever a day when this ends? Uh, That reminded me of a story about a professor, Howard Hendricks, who was in his 80s. Uh, He had been riddled by sin. He had like actually at this time an eye patch that he had to wear due to barely surviving cancer. And he was walking on campus with a young guy one day. And this young man had been fighting sin and he was just exasperated. And one day he just said to this this old professor, when will I ever be free from my battle with lust? When's it going to end? And we're told that he just took a, a moment. And sat there, this professor, and he he looked off, just thinking really hard. And then he came back, and he gave a weary grin, and he said, I don't know, young man, I haven't gotten there yet, but we're getting closer. He's in his 80s, still fighting. What does he mean by we're getting closer? Jesus, we're closer than ever to him coming back and giving us our new bodies. But until then, we fight. So, brothers and sisters, we want to be a church that holds the reins of those two realities in our hands simultaneously. On the one hand, we can agree to put off the pretense that we don't struggle with indwelling sin. And on the other hand, we can agree to trust that the Holy Spirit really can lead us to victory over our sins. I'm so glad we're about to get into the section on the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. But we need to know that We really can have victory over sin because of who we are in Christ. We are powerless in ourselves to please God, but the Holy Spirit in us really can lead us to live fruitful lives to his glory. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just close by telling you that you too can experience the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. You might think, man, I I don't feel like I'm in a bad place, but God's word just said I'm in a bad place, and I don't really know what to do with that. I'd love to talk to you about it love to talk to you about who God made you to be, about the better future that awaits you, about the reality that you don't have to live confined, constrained, and chasing after. All those desires, those appetites that you have, that the more you get, the hungrier they leave you. The fact that you are promised a future and a hope, and it just passes away so quickly and leaves you in despair. If you're looking for true hope of a risen savior who defeated sin and death for you, who promises you a future, with a new body, free from sin, free from death, in his presence forever, I would love to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we come before you, praise you for your son Jesus Christ, who came to save all of us. He came and died in the flesh on the cross to deliver all of us from sin death and your wrath and so father this morning we come before you confessing that all of us are in desperate need of your strength of your spirit to fight the sin that indwells us father give us victory give us more and more opportunity to declare the goodness of the God who saves who saved and who will save we ask this now in the name of your son Christ